0: Today's episode of Gospel Riot is brought to you by Relight. Relight is a free Reformed Theology and Bible Study web app, a project made by a husband and wife team named David and Sarah. It's constantly growing, adding features and resources. With Relight, you can study the Bible with John Calvin and the Geneva Bible Notes, as well as John Brown of Haddington's self-interpreting Bible cross-references. A little nerdy, but being a theology nerd is the best kind of nerd. Relight lets you study systematically. It has the Westminster Standards, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, Keach's Catechism, the Belgic Confession, and many more. One of the best features is the ability to open scripture references in line. So if a commentary, catechism, or other resource mentions a scripture passage, you don't need to open a new tab. You just tap it, and it opens. And then you tap it again, and it collapses. I myself can tell you that the interface is so easy that it really does encourage you to read the scripture passages that are being referenced. And reading more scripture, isn't that the goal? Isn't that always the goal? What more can I say? Relight.app. That's R-E-L-I-G-H-T dot A-P-P. Relight.app. Hey, Les, this is Chuck Murphy. Got a question for you. What
1: candy did you steal from your kids on Halloween? Or did you? And what is your favorite candy bar? Hope to hear you soon. Bye.
0: Halloween. Wait, first of all, let's deal with this Halloween situation. I thought we were Christians. I did dress up as a pirate for Halloween. So, um, I don't think I like to celebrate Halloween. I kind of think I shouldn't celebrate Halloween, but I still do celebrate Halloween. So, this is uh, this is me. This is me bearing my soul and being honest with you. Um Uh, I, holidays in general, I, I kind of deep down, I sort of struggle with them, but, um, I haven't put them to rest. When we talk about Christmas, that's the one that I feel like, uh, one day, uh, when Christmas becomes too overwhelming, I'm just going to be able to pull out my, uh, you know, serious Christian card and just cancel the holiday altogether. But, uh, as of now, I still, I still get the warm, the warm and fuzzies. So uh, I kind of I still roll with the punches for, for Christmas, um, but I still have some special rules around Christmas that uh, that you know we'll probably get to as we get closer to that particular uh, time of the year, the most wonderful time of the year, some might say. Uh, so, candy bars. Well, I like chocolate. I like coconut. Now, people who like chocolate and coconut, they're typically going to go with an almond joy. Get that almond out of my candy bar. This one s- sad, stupid almond. Get it out of there. I don't need it in my candy bar. But what is delicious is chocolate, except not milk chocolate because milk chocolate is awful because it's just sugar. I don't want to taste sugar. I want to taste that bitter, delicious darkness of chocolate. So I want dark chocolate covered over delicious Shredded coconut. So you know what I'm talking about, baby. I'm talking about a mounds. So yeah, my kids know that when they get those mounds, that's dad's dad's candy. Come to think of it, mounds are dark on the outside, light on the inside. That's like the nature of man after conversion. We are a sinful creature on the outside. But on the inside, we're this redeemed soul. How about that? If you'd like to leave a voicemail for the show, you can call 772-324-9328, any kind of voicemail, dumb ones, uh, smart ones, theological ones, ones about candy bars. Uh, But just remember that I'm not your pastor. I have no spiritual authority over your life, so you just take it all with a grain of sand, salt, sand, no, definitely salt, a grain of salt. One more favor. If you could, please go over to iTunes and leave a five-star rating for the show. That way, it kind of gets higher up in the, especially right now, the, the new release charts. Uh, so, uh, it people can get exposed to it. They can see what we're doing here. Because uh, the whole purpose is to help people, you know, get better theology, get better apologetics, get stuff like that. So, they can take the kingdom by storm. The more people that see that, the better. Today's episode, we're talking about the nature of man. Who, is, who are you talking to when you're evangelizing? Like What's going on in their heart? Uh, what do you look like now that you're a Christian? And ultimately, uh, what do our hearts look like when we're in heaven? All that and more today on Gospel Riot. Welcome to Gospel Riot. I'm Les Lanfear. Joining me today is the pastor of Christ Covenant Church. His name's Neil Stewart. Thanks for joining me, Neil. Glad to be here, Les. So we met at Twin Lakes, which is a really cool uh, gathering, getaway for uh, for pastors. And uh, how, how long have you been going to, to Twin Lakes?
1: Oh, wow. I've been going to Twin Lakes. I think I missed the first one, which was way back in the early 80s. Um, maybe late 90s. And then I've been to almost everyone since. So there's, there's been, I've probably been to 20 Twin Lakes and it's been a an island, an oasis of refreshment in the spring, a glorious
0: time. All right, now we got this glorious accent that we gotta, we gotta talk about too. You said auties, which is, which is great. That whole question was a trick to get you to say that. Uh, so wh- where, is this, where does this accent come from? So I hail from Northern Ireland,
1: and I was born and raised there, just outside Belfast, and came across to the states at the in nineteen ninety nine to study at Reformed Theological Seminary back in, in Mississippi, Jackson.
0: So I was I was making a movie when we when we were there. So I interviewed you for uh, my film Spirit and Truth. You did something that nobody nobody else did. I would ask you a question, and these were all off the cuff questions that you you weren't prepared for, and you would you would stop. And you'd say, let me think about that for a second. And you'd, you just think, and you'd think through your answer. And, you know, most people would think that would be like an awkward thing, you know, get whole, to to wait or whatever, but it was so good. And then your answers to all the questions were, were phenomenal. But, uh, I just thought that was so, so good. You're like, you're like, I want to take this seriously. I want to give the best possible answer I can. And, uh, that was very refreshing Praise
1: the Lord. Well, it was. I really, it was, I really enjoyed the time together. You were asking great questions, and uh, it was a wonderful privilege to be part of that uh, documentary. It was tremendous. Oh, my, my congregation have loved it. We plan to. We actually just built a new fellowship hall. The Lord's given much growth here, and we're extending our facilities in every direction. And when we open our new fellowship hall, we plan to show, as spirit and in truth, because it uh, so highlights uh, the the basic um thrust of our ministry that we gather to worship God that worship is our verb and it's the key thing that we do because it's who we are we are those who worship in the spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh mm.
0: yeah that's so good that's um the i I think that so many people you know because I want this podcast to really be emphasizing evangelism and uh helping to sort of equip people in what they need to evangelize but it's it's lost on a lot of modern uh, people, modern evangelicals, whatever. Um, that the the goal of all of this is is to worship God. It's not just to gather a bunch of random people together, you know, to call themselves Christians, call themselves saved. But the, you become a Christian, you become saved for the purpose of of worshiping, right? Exactly.
1: I, mean, I remember I think for most of my Christian life. Certainly for the early part of it, I kind of thought the gospel existed because of hell and because of sin. And that's part of the answer. But of course, the full answer is the gospel exists because worship doesn't. People are worshiping idols all across this world and to rescue them from idolatry and to rescue their worship and the glory they ought to be giving to God. The gospel is calling them out of darkness to proclaim God's excellency. So, yes, amen.
0: All right. Well, we should probably do a whole episode just on that subject in the future. Uh, and all this stuff ties together, obviously. Yes. Um, but today, the nature of man. Let's discuss the importance of that for a second first. Um, especially when you think about going out into the world, um, sharing the gospel with with family, friends, strangers, uh, how important would you say it is to rightly understand what it is you're dealing with in this other human being you're talking to that. Why is it so important to know what man's nature actually is? It's a tremendous question. And so that's, that's a huge problem in our day and age, of course, today, because
1: we live in a secular world that has banished God from all of the great questions of life, or at least the secularist believes he can answer the great questions of life without referencing God and so if you leave God out of the equation, then you rob yourself of the greater half of, the, of of reality. So the Christian world and life view is based upon a dualism. You've got God and matter or spirit and matter. Um, and that dualism carries through also to our human nature, that we are spirit and we are m- and matter. And if you lose the spirit, if you don't begin with God, you have no... Um, foundation for the personal spiritual nature of man, and you're basically left with matter—a random collocation of atoms, as one famous atheist put it. And so, when I'm when I'm talking to people on the street about their souls, and maybe they don't believe in a soul will we zero in on that and talk about then who are you then? Because I mean, how do you explain your consciousness? What's it mean to be your consciousness, your thoughts, your affections, your emotions, your desires? Is there a ghost driving the machine of your body or are you just basically a complicated Venus flytrap? So, um, you know, a a, a long list of biochemical reflexes. So the the Venus flytrap, I remember the child watching uh, a fly land on the leaf of the Venus flytrap and the fly would land and hit the little um, hair and the the trap would close. And I would think, wow, that that, uh, plant is alive and conscious and it meant to do that. But of course it didn't mean to do that. It was just the fly hit the leaf. And then that triggered a cascade of biochemical reactions in the cell that caused uh, in the in the plant that caused a very rapid movement of water out of some cells into another, and that caused the the, the leaf to swell very rapidly and close and trap the fly mm. but it wasn't intentional and if there's no spirit driving the machine essentially that 's what you 're left with at the core of a a human being you 're just left with a long list of um, biochemical reflexes, neuroadrenaline, noradrenaline, adrenaline, serotonin, dopamine, acetylcholine, sodium, potassium, bit of sugar, all mixing together and electrical sparks happening. I think uh, Cyten Bruggenkate calls it brain fizz. And, and, and you're left with brain fizz, which at its basis is random chemical reactions. How do you go from random chemical reactions to reason thought? And would you care what brain fizz thought anyway? It's a huge problem. And so um, one atheist, uh, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, described his creation story kind of mockingly as man, as mud that thinks. Or another atheist speaks of us as a, a soup of chemicals wrapped up in a sack of skin, which mm-hmm. is pretty coarse but accurate, if there's no God and then no spirit and no um, spiritually based foundation for man's personality. It's a huge problem. And so the ancients used to say, um, the unreasoned life was not worth living. Well now, if the atheists are correct, the reasoned life is not worth living because if you thought about it too long, it would it would undermine the very core of who you are as a human being, which is falling apart. And that's what we're seeing out in the world, of course. All these people trying to make sense of themselves, who they are, and what it means to be a human being, and they're 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 having they're kind of building their identity with both feet planted firmly in midair because they're not beginning with God which is the only true and real foundation for human identity, dignity, and responsibility.
0: Mm. So since we're laying out some of the the errors here at the beginning, um, what are some of the ways that Christians misunderstand the nature of man, this this person they're interacting with when they share the gospel? Great question.
1: So I I think Christians go wrong when they build their identity on... Um, worldly thinking and worldly psychology rather than on scripture and, and the foundation of what God has said. And so we live in the world, right? So Dwight Moody famously said, the place for the ship is in the sea, but heaven help the ship if the sea gets into it. And the place for the church is in the world, but heaven help the church if the world gets into it. Mm. And what I think we all struggle with is is trying to... um, uh, uh rescue our minds from worldly assumptions of who we are the whole idea of the self the autonomous self uh the self that that that, that is all about me that I'm a consumer and the consumer is always right we spoke about that in our in, in spirit and truth you know the the modern church often begins with the question what do the consumers want mm. um, but the uh, and and they wrongly think of the consumer as down here on earth, men, women, boys and girls coming to church, are they happy? Are they pleased? And that's that's a very, in a sense, worldly way that Christians are thinking. Even I find myself thinking like that. We, we think we, we are so bombarded by consumeristic messages. that We tend to think in those very autonomous, define myself, make a name for myself, Um m- um, postures which was the work ethic of the Tower of Babel and always lead us away from God and true identity which always leaves us hollow inside because if we don't define ourselves properly then we're really defining ourselves on a lie and lies are fundamentally empty and so I'm always calling the congregation back to God as Calvin said until, until we rise and contemplate God and, and stand before the face of God and see his glory, and then descend from that contemplation, we're not really qualified to fully understand who we are as imago dei, uh, as is set out for us so wonderfully in chapter 1
0: of Genesis. Amen. So let's, let's start in the book of Genesis then. Um, we talk about the, the nature of uh, and the condition of man. Um, how, how was Adam's condition... In Adam's nature different than uh, the nature that we experience now
1: so very good so Adam of course he is imago Dei unfallen when he is created so he's a living soul in a living body he's alive his body's alive and um, his soul is alive when God speaks he listens when God reveals his glory in the cosmos he sees it and worships when God commands he obeys when God promises he trusts uh, when God draws near, He leans in, as it were. That's those are the postures of a living soul, just like a living body runs and and jumps and leaps. And um, we can go back maybe later and speak of what what actually does it mean to be image of God. That's an important subject as well. Mm. Um, but let's let's follow this line of thinking. So living, and I actually use this quite a lot. One of the most amazing conversions I've ever seen in person. Was a young atheist lad I was talking to in Panera Bread back in uh, Savannah um, on the seventh of October two thousand and fourteen, with my son's seventh birthday. Another boy in our church, another teenager, or sorry, a college student in our church, was killed in a car accident that day. And then this young lad, who was a child of the church but has fallen away and become an atheist, we're having uh, lunch in Panera. And we're chatting and uh, he says to me, you know, I just hate dogmatism. And I said to him, well, you seem really passionate about that. Uh, how badly do you hate dogmatism? And he goes, I am dogmatically opposed to it. <laughs> and I said, ah, there you go. It's hard not to be dogmatic about something, isn't it? And then he said in a moment of candor, he said, you know, I've tried to live the Christian life. It just doesn't work. I said, OK, so let me, uh, can I explain to you why that might be the case? He said, yeah. So I I went through that line of thinking. I said, so... Allow me to just assume the Christian position. The Bible says that you and I, before we are born again, before God breathes life into our souls, we are actually in this world now a dead soul in a dying body. Now it wasn't always that way. When God made Adam in the garden, it was he was a living soul in a a living body, and God said, "In the day you eat of the tree, you will surely die." And when Adam sinned, he walked away from God. He disconnected his soul from the life-giving presence of the living God, which is the precondition for spiritual life. And in that moment, God said, you will die. Dying, you will die. And Adam met the tree, and he probably thought, well, I didn't die, but he did. He died in his soul. He became a dead soul in a dying body. The body's catching up with our soul. Now, I said, Mm. let's go back to you. So if that's true, okay, dead soul, dying body, that's pretty hard to figure out, because I I remember being like that myself. Um, So... How can you be, you think I'm alive, I'm not dead. Well, hold on. So I said to him, okay, so you've got a dead so dead body. If I had a heart attack now, dropped dead on the ground, my body would be dead, right? It wouldn't have the life God intended, but it wouldn't cease to exist. It just wouldn't have the life God intended it to have. So the eyes that God meant to see wouldn't be seeing. The ears God meant to hear wouldn't be listening. The lips that God meant to speak wouldn't be speaking. The hands wouldn't be moving. The lungs mo- breathing, heart beating, all those things, right? Wouldn't be happening. It'd be there, but it wouldn't have the life God intended it to have. Now, I said, think of the soul. A dead soul is there, but it doesn't have the life God intended it to have, Right? Um, so what's a living soul? I explained what I just said to you about seeing the glory and worshipping and hearing the word of God and responding and when God prods us we feel something. A dead soul exists but doesn't have any of that. God reveals his glory and sees nothing particularly important. It might see a beautiful sunset but doesn't see the glory of the creator glowing in that sunset or um, God's word is heard and he finds all these reasons to ignore it. God makes a promise, laughs at it, that sounds silly. Here's about the resurrection of Christ. That just seems stupid to him, right? And so you can be dead in your soul, but still existing and walking about in this earth. And I said to him, you must be born again. Jesus said, unless you're born again, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of heaven. You're blind to it and you're dead to it. You can't come because you won't come. And it's because you won't come that you can't come. You're a dead soul in a dying body and you need life. And I, I'm not joking you. I said that to him. Atheist, right? And literally, he started, you'd think he'd been electric, shocked. He looked at me and he said, I want to spend the rest of my life glorifying God. How do I wow. do that? I almost fell off the chair. That's wow. never, ever happened to me before. It's like, it was amazing. So we went to the car and we wow. prayed. And he just prayed this prayer, tears dripping down his face, saying, Lord, all my life, my parents taught me and I hardened my heart to it. And I did it. You know I did it. I hardened my heart to the gospel and truth. I knew it was true. I hardened. And he was saying this. I'm thinking he's praying with more spiritual life and knowledge. And I hear many Christians pray. He said, Lord, have mercy upon me. And it was just, it was incredible hearing all of this truth that had been taught over the years suddenly come online in his mind. And uh, he was a better theologian than many Christians, than many, you know, professed Christians.
0: And that's that's the spiritual life is back in the soul. Exactly. And, but it's still in a dying body, right?
1: So dead soul, dying body, living soul, dying body. And then when Christ returns, we become living souls in the power of an endless life, that our body shall be alive forevermore, back again, in the life-giving presence of the living God, which is one of the things I love about the Christian faith because it honors both the soul and the body, which is just tremendous. Mm-hmm. So um, that I use, that's the illustration I use all the time. Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all once walked in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So, our desires are warped. Our mind is, we do what seems good to the mind, what looks good to the eye, what feels good to the body. That's what drives us. But behind it, the devil is at work, stirring up dark desires. As people like dead fish being swept down, a polluted, toxic stream of industrial uh, waste mm. being swept along with the world. And yet Christ comes in and says to these dead fish, you shall live. And then they can swim upstream and, and away and up and out uh,
0: in the power of an endless life. Mm. So before the fall happens, uh, we, we have Adam, we have Adam in the garden, and you mentioned that he was made in the image of God. And that's something that we talk about a lot. Um, and I, I think a lot of people maybe aren't, aren't uh, nailing that down a lot, even in their minds. Even, even I, you know, I have, I have some idea of what it means to be made in the image of God. Could you help us unpack what, it, what, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? <sighs>
1: Great question, Les. So let's see. Um, so image of God. So at basic level, image of God means that there are real concrete parallels between the way God God is and the way we are. Now, of course, God is bigger and better and brighter than us at a level of infinity. So there's an infinite distance separating us from him. And yet there is at least some parallel um, that our minds are designed to think. We can think God's thoughts after him. God is the great speaker. We can speak. So when I try to explain that to the congregation from Genesis 1, I use a number of R Let's see if I can remember them. So um, first of all, man is relational. So God is relational. He exists in an I-Thou relationship. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So in that beautiful verse in John 1, 1, when it said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, or and God was the Word, it's amazing. God is the Word, and the Word existed when only God existed. And yet there's more to God than the Word, because while the Word is God, He's also with God. And the Greek is beautiful. It's not just with as in side by side, but with as in face to face. It's towards. The Word was towards God, So ultimate reality is a father looking at his son and the son looking at his father in love with no desire or need to look away for something better to occupy themselves with. And then from the father and the son, of course, comes the Holy Spirit. So you've got this triune community of love, which is reflected in Genesis 1 when they say, let us make man in our image. And the very name Elohim in Hebrew is a plural noun. So while God is one, he's also many. He is the e pluribus unum behind all diversity and unity in the cosmos and that actually that's an idea with consequences because how, if god isn't three then he can't be a god of love because to be a god of love we have to have someone to give love to and receive love from which is a problem for the islamic faith because they have a god who's a monad and therefore he was by himself from all eternity and by definition happy that way with no need to love or to give love to or receive love from. But the Christian God is different. And so there's an I-Thou relationship in the heart of God. And when we we find man made in God's image, even though in Genesis 2 we know the order economically is man made first and then the woman. And there's reasons for that, Paul says in the New Testament. No time to go there. (laughs) But just in case you might think that because women were made second, they were an afterthought. It's a beautiful thing that in Genesis 1, when you first meet image of God, he's plural. It's almost as if you imaging God can't be a solo sport because there's got to be more of one of you to do it. Mm. And so you've got man and woman, right? So there's a an I-thou relational aspect. And that's even... Emphasis, emphasized in the way God blesses. So he blesses the animals. God um, blessed the animals saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But when he blesses Adam and Eve, man, he says, and God blessed them and said to them. So he speaks the blessing about the animals, but he speaks the blessing to man, that man alone is of all creation is designed to receive propositional revelation from God, who's the great speaker which is why God made the world with words, I think, to show us that when he speaks, everything changes. He's the great communicator. And likewise, we are relational and we communicate with words to one another and to God vertically, horizontally. So there's a relational component to it. Um, there's also a, a um, let's see, relational. There's also a um, righteous component to it. So man is concerned to... God is concerned with good and evil, and man too has a conscience. There's a voice of God in his soul that uh, tells him how things stand between him and the law of God. So there's a righteous, there's a relational, there's a righteous element to it. There's also a regal element to it um, that we are designed to rule the cosmos and order it for his glory, right? Uh, also a rational content, that kind of goes with the relational, we're designed to hear his word and think and be to have, be rational, conscious thinking creatures, uh, homo sapiens, and then there's a religious element to it, just as God creates the universe in six days, going toward the seventh day, which I think is an example, why did God make the world in six days and not six milliseconds? To give an example to his image bearers of what a working week looks like, going from chaos to order, making three big spaces, then filling those spaces with meaning and, and, and everything's done on time and, and leads toward the whole is a wonderful example of what work looks like. right? And it, it drives toward the Sabbath day. Um, that, the, that, the, that the heartbeat of the universe is a liturgy. And so man is created for worship. He's made to know God. So even in Genesis 2, when you have that down-to-earth experience of God creating man, God kisses life into him in a very unique way. He breathes the life into man and he becomes a living soul. Man opens his eyes and he's face-to-face with God. His first conscious thought is relationship with God and being in the face of God which is an incredible thing. And so that's kind of image of what it means to be an image of God. And it's interesting, the memory of that seems to have lived on in the ancient Near East. So um, Selem and Demut, the two Hebrew words for likeness and image, um, those words were used or derivatives of them by the kings in the ancient Near East who had put up images of themselves in their land. Uh, Saddam Hussein did this too, of course, and Lenin and others. But these statues that kind of said, This is my land where my authority abides. And I think that's a deep cultural memory going back to God, who was the first king who put mobile images of himself on this world uh, to display his sovereignty and his glory in the cosmos. And so that's kind of man made in God's image. And then when he falls, when he sins, when he breaks God's commandment and sins in Genesis 3, a terrible moment of alienation comes in, um, which kind of cuts him off from all of that. It, he's, he's, that. That alienation reaches in almost every direction. It reaches up to God. Um, he's cut off from God. He feels the need to hide from God. Um, he's alienated from his spouse. They start wearing fig leaves before they sinned they were naked and unashamed which doesn't just mean the garden of eden within like a nudist colony but it means that adam and eve were happy to be naked emotionally intellectually spiritually physically there was no fear of being known and to have what was known to be a disappointment
0: nothing to be ashamed of
1: there was just delight in one another's presence that's gone they're hiding and then they're cut off they're from the land. The land's got weeds and all kinds of things growing up, and um, it's a mess. And then they're cut off from themselves. Man is insecure. He's full of fear and doubt and self-loathing and concerns. So all of those things feed into the human condition today, and uh, um, we
0: all know it. So are we still made in the image of God, or has that been completely destroyed? That's a great question. Um, Calvin,
1: of course, one of our, our uh, the great theologians, he's very rhetorical. At times he will speak almost if the image of God has been totally defaced, but it hasn't been. We're just cut off from the life-giving presence of God. Mm. Uh, we're lost boys living east of Eden. We don't know who we are anymore. And so we still think... But uh, like the legs of a dead cockroach, there's one lying over in the corner of my office at the moment, you pick it up, but the legs of a dead cockroach, (laughs) they all point inwards, right? Um, So man, dead in sin, all of his thoughts, all of his desires, all of his emotions, all of his hopes and dreams point inwards. He's incapable of loving others or loving God or loving others. Because if we don't give God his place, nobody is safe. And that dynamic is why it's so hard to be married, Um, just ask my wife, you know, it's kind of, it's so hard to be married to me. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, all those things because we're selfish. And, and even when we do love others, it's generally because I love them because they make my life better. And if they stop making my life better, then we find out just how selfless we're willing to be, which of course the answer is not very much often.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you, you talked about this, uh, this even evangelistic, uh, successful, praise God, evangelistic experience that you had with your, with your friend. Um, and at the end of that, uh, scenario, he, he repented and he, he, he came to Christ, which is obviously that's what we want in every <laughs> evangelistic encounter. Um, but you're also talking about this deadness in, in man and and now the, you know, the, this, this very warped, uh, image of God that exists in us. Um, so, you, you know, how should we be thinking when we're talking, when we're sharing the gospel with people, if we really in the back of our mind understand that they are, they're dead, um, incapable of, of really any kind of response, just like a, a dead body would be. Um, if that's the case, then, you know, how, how, how can we interact with these people? Um, if they're, if they're unable to, to really do anything about it. Great question. Okay. So,
1: um, so the only power, so the first thing as, as evangelists, we've got to remember, the only force in the universe capable of calling something out of nothing and life out of deadness and light out of darkness is the word of God, mm. which is why we've got to get to the word of God as early as possible. And one of the, uh, one of the there are two great re- weaknesses, I think, with the whole evidentialist explanation of apologetics where you try to give evidence for things, right? And there's a place for that. But in the past, well, the first thing is I'm not smart enough. I really, sincerely, I'm not. You have to have all the details in your mind. And and if you haven't got the details, it doesn't work. And I can't remember them all too hard. But um, the the biggest problem is with evidentialism is you spend your entire conversation trying to justify using the Bible. But you never get to the Bible because you can never justify it because you're just always explaining. And the Bible itself has the power of God and the salvation in it. And so just let the Bible out of the cage. It's an amazing thing. So... um, when i approach so the mindset when i approach it's a bit like in brazilian jiu-jitsu when they're wrestling there's a reference position called the guard where you get somebody in the guard and you're always fighting to that or from that in the wrestling kind of game it's a safe place where you can kind of get to and control things from and um and so the, when i'm when i'm evangelizing i'm always getting to this guard i'm doing one of two things Either I'm explaining the the unbelieving position is it, it makes nonsense of life and all of the great things that make life meaningful, beauty, love, wisdom, relationship, community, all of that just becomes the smoke of chemical reactions. Okay, but... The second thing I'm doing is that you're made in God's image and God has spoken. So made in God's image, right? You are designed, designed to receive information from God, about God, and to recognize it when you do. Like a cell phone. You open up your cell phone. From the moment you open it up, it's looking for cell signals and Wi-Fi signals. It's made that way, out of the box. And you are too. And the problem is... You receive these information everywhere. It comes, the cosmos is alive with God's glory. Every bird, every bee, every atom, every tree, every star, at their first meeting, witness to you, I have a creator, and you really should worship him, right? So outside, but it's not just outside, inside too. You are part of that creation, so your very being, your conscience, this sense that you ought to behave a certain way and that... um, that you should blush because you ought to blush. You should be ashamed of yourself. That, those, that sense of internal righteousness is there. We all have this sense, right? And that also reveals God's glory. Mm. So then whenever you hear the word of God, and I'll say this to people, when you, when you hear the Bible, you're not hearing the voice of some new God. You're hearing the voice of the God you've always already known from the first conscious moment of your existence. Mm. Love your love your neighbor, You've heard that it was said to those of old, hate your enemy uh, and love your neighbor. But Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for them and be the sons of your father in heaven. And there's a, a well-known Muslim convert uh, when he, he wrote the book Son of Hamas. He was in, involved in the Palestinian terrorist organization. He was given the New Testament by an American, by an American evangelist opened it up to the Sermon on the Mount by accident, read those words, love your enemy. And he said, the light of nature rose up inside me and said, this is the voice of God. Allah says, hate your enemy and kill him. Jesus says, love your enemy and pray for him. And I just knew in that moment that this was God speaking to me. And so I wanna get to the Bible as quickly as possible. And and it explain that dynamic to them that they do know God and that they don't like they, they haven't got the right to imagine a God for themselves, because God has revealed Himself to them, and the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What truth? Well, Paul says, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. It's Romans 1. And um, and everyone knows that. And I'll tell that to them. And I remember one time in Starbucks, I was speaking to a Buddhist, and he was he really delighted in talking about sin, sexual sin particularly. He was in no shame. We we're talking. And in the middle of it, I said to him, you know, um, sir... And we're waiting for our coffee. He hasn't got his coffee yet, neither have I. So we're standing in the line talking. And uh, I said to him, You know, I've noticed you've you, you, you have no shame talking about sin. But when I speak about judgment to you, you get very uncomfortable. Like when I, when I say to you, It is appointed once for a man to die, and after that comes the judgment, your eyes get really nervous. You look down at your feet and you kind of shift your weight a bit. And he looked at me and I said, do, do you know why you do that? And he said, No. I said, Because you know it's true. And I kid you not, he went, I've got to go. And he turned and he ran out of Starbucks, leaving his coffee on the uh, on the counter. Um, maybe I maybe snatched at the hook too quickly. But there's a, there's, when, when, I, when I use that apologetic with people, I see in their eyes, they, there's a friend within their conscience saying to them, whispering in their ear, what this man says makes sense, and it's true because you know it's true. God himself has shown it to you. And the I like that because it gets to the Bible immediately, which is the only power that can call people out of death into life.
0: So, so you're saying there's sort of this— uh, so the Bible itself is the only uh, ordained way that that can actually break through the veil, break through the deadness, uh, and and get in there— piercing the yes. heart. The faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Yeah. So when Christ
1: speaks, there's creative power there. Just like with Lazarus in the tomb when Jesus says, follow me. Or you remember a great sermon by one of my heroes, Ted Donnelly, on the human will in Christ from John 5. It's on Sermon Audio. But at the end, the whole, the whole sermon was about human will and how the will, um, when Jesus said to the Pharisees, you will not come to me that you might have life, right? And most powerful call of the gospel I've ever heard in a sermon. At the end of the sermon, he's been telling people for the whole, for fifty minutes, you know, you can't come to Christ because you won't come to Christ. You're, you hate him and you're resisting to him. Now I tell you to come to him. And they say, but you just told me I can't come to Christ and you're commanding me to come. And he says, yes. Let me explain what's happening here. I'm not the one speaking. The Lord Jesus Christ is in this room and he is speaking through me and he has power in his voice to call the universe into existence out of nothing and he is saying to you, come to me. And then he says, use the illustration of the man with the withered arm. There's a man in Mark's gospel, withered arm. We don't know his name. We just know him by what he could not do. He could not stretch out his arm. It was withered. What did Christ say to him? stretch out your arm and the man stretched out his arm why because there's power in the voice of christ and so he says i tell you in the name of christ come to him and he will save you and he just looked around the room calling people to come to christ come unto me all you who are weary and i will give you rest and the holy spirit was just alive in that room in a way that i've rarely felt it was incredible and it was true to the gospel and true to the nature of man in sin and uh, true to the power of God unto salvation.
0: That's so good. So, and, and you, you know, you just mentioned that it's the, the Holy spirit is the one who's empowering in that moment to, uh, to do what you can't do. So, I mean, talking to a person who's incapable of doing what you're telling them to do, but you're, you're basically saying, uh, like Jesus with the man with the withered arm, um, you you can't do this, but do it. You know, like, repent. Because the call itself is the call from God who it's empowers the one he's calling to do the thing that the person is incapable of doing.
1: Yes, the word I love in John 6, Jesus says, no one can come unto me unless the one who sent me draw him. And the, he, the Greek word is drag. It's the word used of the uh, apostles at the end of John's gospel, when they drag the huge net bursting with fish up mm. onto the, the bank, it it it, it means to, dr- to drag a weighty object that is only inertia and provides n- um, no um, help to the one doing the dragging. No man can come unto me unless the Father who sent me drag him. But all who come to me, Jesus says, I'll by no means cast out.
0: Beautiful. So far, we've talked a lot about the the sin The sinful condition of man and what's necessary to change that. Uh, let's take a break and then we'll talk about uh the the good side of things what 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 changes on on this side of salvation?, uh, we'll be right back This is an ad spot for a podcast that's brand new and doesn't have any advertisers. So I'm gonna tell you about some of the things that I have going on that you can help support me. Uh, in the meantime, Hey, but if you're an advertiser, just keep in mind right here's a little ad spot that, uh, that could be all yours. Uh, my name's Les Lanfear. Uh, if you don't know who I am, I am as far as my career goes currently, I'm a filmmaker. I made two movies. I made a movie called Calvinist, which is about the resurgence of Reformed theology, uh, over the past, you know, 20 years or so maybe. And, uh, then I made another movie. It's called Spirit and Truth, and that movie is specifically about uh, worship and what is it that we should be thinking about when we think about approaching God in worship. So both of those movies are available online, and you can also get hard copies of it. So if you go to CalvinistMovie dot com or if you go to Spirit and Truth dot uh, you can access either one of those those particular films, and obviously, if you buy those, you're helping support me. You're helping support the the kinds of things that I do. So, uh, so please check those out. Ad spot available. Welcome back to Gospel Riot. I'm here with Neil Stewart. Uh, we're talking about the condition of man. This idea of being made in the image of God. Adam in the garden, and uh, something dramatic changes when when sin comes into the world through Adam's sin. Um, and now there's a, this fallen nature of man. And you said that it's, um, a a dead soul in a dying body. And there's an, there's all kinds of implications to that. Like there's an inability in man to, to come to God. And and this is, this is good. You, you, so you said, I want to get to the word of God as, as soon as I can. And, um, and that's that's the power of God unto salvation. So we, people typically and even my I myself, I, I feel this, um, am hesitant to start quoting scripture, to, to start talking about the things and it's just much easier to talk about um science and you know, like try to prove that a God exists or whatever. It seems like the natural tendency. Um but but you're saying get in there with the word, cut it straight, because now it's no longer your useless human voice talking to a dead person it's a powerful voice and we're and we actually have that ability to speak on behalf of god as a prophet right
1: Yes, that's very good and one of the things that so there's no doubt that the hardest part of evangelism for anyone uh, and i find this myself as an introvert is the first 30 seconds getting started is really hard mm-hmm and I think Greg Kukul has got a really helpful, his whole idea of Columbus questions where um, he, he asks questions from people. like Just one more thing, like that kind of
0: yeah the way diminutive, um,
1: yeah. detective. And his two questions, of course, are what did you mean by that? And how did you come to that conclusion? Yeah. And uh, I saw a debate last night between Tom Holland, who's an atheist historian, amazing ancient historian, but coming more and more to see the power of the cross.
0: He also played Spider-Man, Tom Holland. A different ones, but you, oh. <laughs> and then there's another
1: historian. there arguing about Christianity, and he's actually an atheist arguing for Christianity. That's interesting, and they're, they're both making claims. But the other historian, Tom Hulke, is asking him, how do you come to that conclusion?" And the man's got no answers. It's kind of funny. Where, where what, how do you how, where do you grind these claims? Where do you find them? And the man, by and large, is lost. And so one of the one of the reasons why I think evangelism is really hard is that we feed. we have to do all the talking mm. and the unbeliever goes in all the questions. How do you justify the Bible? How, these these texts and they come out with all this stuff, you know, and um, how do you answer that? And we can find ourselves skating in thin ice. And so reversing that and putting the shoe in the other foot and asking them to, how do you justify, you know, they make a statement. Where did that, you know, what do you mean by that? And then how did you come to that conclusion are two very powerful questions that can get them talking and then give you a position to
0: engage with the gospel when the opening comes up, which it will. That's wonderful. And so, uh, when, uh, the Lord does speak, when the Lord, uh, does cut through that deadness and brings about spiritual life, um, then something else changes. So another dramatic change. Um, what, what, what is different about the, 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 the nature of a Christian versus the nature of, uh, a uh, f- just fallen man.
1: So great. So in Titus 1, Paul makes that statement, to the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience is defiled. And so Paul's contrasting the total depravity of the unbeliever that every part of our nature, our mind, our affections, our will, our emotions, our conscience even, they're all defiled. They're all darkened, benighted by sin. Uh, But once the light of God comes into the soul, that changes. We become totally sanctified, not that we become sinless or perfect, but the light of the gospel touches every faculty of our being, mind, affections, emotions, desires, choice making, the will, and the conscience are all enlightened and ennobled by the gospel.
0: Hmm. So, uh, so, what, what kind of implications does that have uh, for for the Christian? So, so before we were, uh, you know, you, you said that the two things were dead in dead souls and dying bodies, living souls and dying bodies,
1: and then the the last state of man, a living soul in a living body. Forever. Yeah. Uh,
0: so, so what kind of uh, real practical implications does that have for for ability for for a Christian?
1: Right. So it all begins with the mind. The mind, I think, is the seat of. Um, spiritual death in the unbeliever and spiritual life in the believer. So in Ephesians 4, Paul says to the church, I do not want you to walk as the Gentiles also walk in the darkness of their mind in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding because of the ignorance that is in them. Those are all intellectual words, intellectual mind, darkness, ignorance, right? They're cut off from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. They've become hard. They've given themselves over, Paul says, to the practice of lust with greediness. That's the mind. But he said, you, Christian church, did not learn Christ that way. Just as you were taught in him, because truth is in Jesus, Paul That's a bit of a paraphrase, but it's in Ephesians 4, I think it's 17 and following. But that the the mind of the Christian is engaged with truth and the darkness is gone and there's light there. Or as Paul says in Romans 12, that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, Mm -hmm. um, taking every thought captive to the knowledge of Christ, another part of Paul's teaching. So the mind becomes alive and from that mind then, we learn to recognize truth and beauty and goodness, and we are drawn toward it, but it all begins in the mind, yeah, which is why the word is so important
0: so is that is, is that uh w- what about like our change in desires um, so it, the 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 unbeliever uh, has a desire for gratification for sin and, and even Uh, You know, one interesting thing, like, you know, people talk about, well, can't unbelievers do good things? And on one hand, you could say they do because they, you know, they might serve at a soup kitchen and, and, uh, you know, feed the poor, whatever they do. Uh, But at the end of the day, if their ultimate uh, uh, target that they're shooting the arrow at through this good work isn't to glorify God, then it's got to be something else. And like you said, the cockroach legs are pointing inward. So you're really satisfying self, right?
1: Yeah, so the expulsive power of new affection. But I still think the mind is central. If you remember the, the, the fall of Eve, and also it's re-repeated it's re, um, with Achan in Joshua. She saw, she took, she ate. She saw that the tree, w- which God forbid, was good for food and desirable to make one wise. And so the way the soul seems to work we see goodness. Whatever we see as good or think is good, we desire. Our soul is a goodness seeking missile. Whatever we see as good, we desire. Whatever we desire, we pursue and we take. I saw. I desired, I took, right? And so even the devil, so in Milton's Paradise Lost, when the devil falls, there's a tremendous bit where he says, evil be thou my good, very insightful by Milton, that even the devil pursues evil because it promises some goodness to him. Wow. Um, And so what happens when you're converted is your mind learns to recognize goodness and truth and beauty, not apart from God, but in God, and then recognizing that goodness, we desire it. And desiring it, we pursue it.
0: Mm. Well, what about what about this frustration that I'm constantly feeling? And uh, the longer I am as a as a Christian, um, or the longer I live as a Christian, the the more it becomes frustrating uh, that I have these new desires, that I have this this new way of thinking, and yet I am constantly, and it seems increasingly falling short of actually uh, satisfying those desires to glorify God and put, put sin to death. So what's up with that? <laughs> Great question.
1: So in, in Romans seven, Paul speaks a famous word where he says, I um, if I do what I, so am um, the, the good that I want to do, I no longer do. And the evil that I hate that I practice, o wretched man that I am, mm. um, that there's this war going on between the spirit and the flesh and then paul says this amazingly uh, myst- mystical word mysterious word if i do what i will not to do it is no longer i who do it but sin that dwells in me yeah. so there's this strangeness in the in the man in, in the heart of christ paul says i have died and the life that i now live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god that christ lives in me and christ works through me that i my the better por- portion of my soul is united to Jesus. And yet there's a dark side too. But it's not me anymore. The the, the me, the real me, is in Christ, in Christo. But there's a there's a vestige of the old man lurking in the background, uh, doing a spiritual insurgency like Al Qaeda in Iraq, all years ago, causing trouble. But it's not me. It it it. And I'm responsible for it when I give into it. But there's like. The, <laughs> If I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I'm kind of kidnapped and dragged off by it, James says. And so there's this amazing uh, conflict going on between the Christ man and the flesh. But the Christian, the true Christian, never sinned with his whole heart. As he's being dragged off, he's going, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Stop, 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 stop and the better part of him is pulling him towards Christ even though at that moment the flesh is taking control and is driving the bus as it were going back to a former metaphor
0: man so yeah that's that's a comfort that i personally need uh j- just to to wrap my mind around better so you you're saying that um if we, our, our identity is truly in Christ and but this vestige of sin so like i i i I know you just explained it, but just just to just for help i and I'm sure our audience is uh experiencing all the same frustrations uh with struggling with sin um so so really dig that in for a second since since we're talking about it um the comfort of being you know the, 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 of it being sin in me and it not me obviously we can't just cast it off as well, you know it's not me doing it, so it's not a big deal but uh how's that a comfort
1: so um it's a comfort so in a sense right um so sin is it exists in every human heart and the flesh principle the unredeemed human nature mm. And there's no good in it. It's, it's like not like Darth Vader. Remember that moment in Star Wars. Whenever Luke said, "Remember," as like an eight year old child hearing this, and she go, "He goes, I can sense some goodness in Vader." And I'm yeah, like, you got to be kidding me. He's, he's he's the Dark Lord all the way to the bottom. <laughs> um, but there is no goodness in the flesh. He is the Dark Emperor. He is that old guy in the new movie. His name I can't remember. It's <laughs> not Smeagol, That's a. Uh, Anyway, whatever that guy was, he is total. The flesh is total wickedness, no goodness, not a drop of mercy, hatred, malice, bitterness, anger, selfishness, Mm. flesh and the spirit. Now, um, so the flesh exists in all men. In the unbeliever, it rains. It's the reigning influence. In the believer, it is the remaining influence. It's still there as a stain in the background, but it's not raining anymore. And sometimes John Owen, who's a Puritan and wrote a lot about this, he speaks about, it can sometimes be very, very very difficult to tell, is the flesh the reigning influence on your life or is it the remaining influence in your life? And you gotta and Peter in Second Peter one speaks about making your calling and your election sure. Yes. And that's the current business of the Christian. Yeah. So how do you how do you make your calling and election sure? Well it's not that you're insecure about it, right? But you make your calling and election sure by turning away from sin and turning toward Christ. Mm-hmm. That that's the that's the trajectory of a soul making his calling and election sure. If we turn away from Christ and pursue sin, and it becomes, a uh, we, we all do that every day, you and me both, okay? But if that becomes the, 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 the defining trajectory of our life, sooner or later we fall under the warnings of Paul when he speaks about the flesh in Galatians 6 and elsewhere. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God and we should be alarmed, okay? Uh, have we ever been saved and tasted the grace of God? So we live in Aye. the midst of that tension, but there's the promise, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live according to the spirit, you will live. And so what I tell myself, what I tell my congregation, is in those moments of madness when you want to sin, okay, um, when you want to sin, and the devil tempts us, he reaches through the the, the, the keyhole of our soul, but sometimes we leave the door ajar. Sometimes we'll go on social media and look through, you know, Instagram or somewhere else and hope to find something just a little bit, you know, saucy. Yeah. Because our flesh wants that, right? And in those moments, what do you do when you're being pulled aside? You look to Christ. And it's my testimony. If I've ever called upon the Lord, even in those moments when I'm being dragged off by my sin and deceived by it, Mm. I say, Lord, you know that I want to sin now. Mm. And I'm being overwhelmed. I actually want to sin. But Lord, will you help me? Will you remember your promise in Ezekiel that you would put your spirit within me and cause me to keep your statutes and to walk in your ways and do them? Remember your promise in Philippians 2, I had to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because you are the one who is at work in me to will and to do, to will, to create a new desire and to give me the strength to carry that desire out. And so, Lord, don't leave me alone. Don't abandon me. Help me and rescue me. And in that moment, if I've ever done that, I've always been delivered. Now, sadly, sometimes we want to sin so much that we kind of are like Augustine and say, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. And we find ourselves being dragged off and we don't want to ask for help, so we don't. And then predictably, the outcome doesn't turn out very well.
0: Yeah. Uh, that 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 concept that you're bringing up, making your calling and election sure, and then ultimately, um, you know, having to hear loud and clear the warnings of scripture, um, I think that is something that uh, has been lost on, on uh, a generation of of people. Uh, it, you know, even the, the people that I theologically agree with the most, it seems like um, don't have a great understanding of, of that idea. Uh, but so that's something that maybe we'll. Uh, I need to devote an entire episode to the warnings of Scripture and things like that. Uh, but to to wrap all this up, so Thomas Boston obviously uh, has this great uh, explanation of the four states of fooled. of. Of fourfold states of man. Um, so he says that before the fall, we were able to sin and able to not sin. So that's specifically Adam and Eve. Uh, after the fall, man became able to sin, but now no longer able to not sin. So unable to not sin. So now man yes. can only sin.
1: You're then, not able not to sin, yes.
0: Yeah, and so yeah, able to sin, unable to not sin. Uh, the reborn man is That's us, Christians now living in this world, uh, not yet glorified. We are able to sin and able to not sin. So we're essentially back to Adam's state as far as our ability to sin. And uh, one day coming, uh, when we're glorified, when Christ returns uh, and we're given new bodies, uh, I I probably, well, also we should say that the time that we are, if we die before Christ returns, the time that we're in heaven— we will be unable to sin. Right? Not able to sin. Let's talk about that. The future glorified state, uh, which we have much less information on, uh, biblically speaking, because God hasn't told us all the things that are going to happen in glory. But uh, w- what's that What's that uh, final state of man look like?
1: Oh, wonderful. Well, so you have the, if we die now, our bodies go in the grave, but our soul goes to be with Jesus. And that's in a whole new thought. I mean, What's it like to be a disembodied spirit? Because, again, our bodies are the machinery, biochemical machinery that we use to engage with the world. And so my mother has got Alzheimer's disease and her mind is gone, right? But her soul hasn't got Alzheimer's disease. But she can't access memories and she can't um, access reason because her soul seems to have some need of the brain to do that. It's kind of a very, I have no idea. So her body goes into the grave and her soul goes to be with Jesus, which is great, But not best. Mm. But when Christ returns, of course, the graves are opened. And just imagine that moment of the glory. Heaven's torn open and Jesus coming through with the myriads of angels and the glory. His face shining like the sun and his voice like the sound of many waters and heaven and earth fleeing from him. And then he calls out to the graves and they open. And the dead in Christ rise. And then we who are alive, What happen happened now, we'd see all the all the dead in Christ rising to meet Jesus. And then we'd be transformed and we would be rising up too, to meet Jesus in the air. Then there's the final judgment, and then there's the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then it'll be life lived as we were it meant to be lived. And I don't believe it'll be um like some just carrying a harp and singing all day long. Um but I, I think we'll be living life, community, friendship, fellowship, feasting. Uh, I believe you'll be making movies. Um, (laughs) My former career as a doctor won't be needed anymore, of course. Um, But uh, we'll all have our unique gifts. People will be engineering things, uh, you know, solving uh, technology, building. And and it'll be, we will be subduing the new cosmos, the new earth, exploring the stars and the cosmos and, and, and the universe and extending it and building it and uh wow the harmony the love there running businesses maybe even as well but a, a business i remember there was a a man i knew back in mississippi and he was a wonderful christian capitalist and uh it was just tremendous he said you know every every business he had would run well and even if, anyway, just amazing. And I, how do you do that? He said, well, I've made more money in my life paying more people and more money than anybody else. And I said, what do you mean? We said, well, I view my businesses as a, as a means to serve the community and to give people a job and let them use their gifts and their callings and to provide a meaningful sense of them using their humanity for God's glory if they're Christians and then providing for their families. And, and, and I, I pay people a little bit more than anybody else will pay them for the job they do. And of course, then I can hire the best people and they work really hard. But he had this idea of service and Mm -hmm. his capital that he built, he would fund orphanages and homes for troubled children. He lived in a very modest house, but he's one of the wealthiest men in Mississippi. And he just you know God shoveled it in he shoveled it out and he, the money and he said God's got a bigger shovel but he just <laughs> it was a wonderful example of businesses that were you know, I glorify God by running a successful business taking care of my employees serving them as they serve me and uh, I think there'll be that dynamic going on in heaven we'll be doing things leadership and we'll all be perfect but it doesn't mean we'll all be the same mm. um, there'll, there'll still be some people we'll all be to sing in tune praise the Lord uh, say my children for I sing loudly in church, but there'll still be some people who sing and that your jaw will drop that they've been gifted yeah. with a degree of musical ability that's beyond the normal and they'll stand out. But, but as they stand out, they'll be directing it all to the glory of God who made them. But like Eric little, he made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. it
0: will be like that in everything. That's beautiful. One thing, Mark Jones, uh, book, knowing Christ first, uh, Pointed out to me was the idea that uh, because God is infinite and our minds are finite, uh, even just creaturely in a creaturely sense, we are we will always be finite. Um, we will never fully comprehend who God is. So that means even in eternity, we'll constantly be learning about who God is. So that that rush that you get when you like really understand a doctrine for the first time um, about God, it's like. The, you almost live in a constant state of that in eternity, of just, of just more and more uh, understanding who God is and what Christ has done for us. And uh, Sounds pretty good. One quick thing in that.
1: Even Christ, um, in his human nature, is still also finite. He'll still understand finitude from the inside. And mm. Donald MacLeod has this great thought about Christ, even now in the glory. He says, what the Son became stands in awe of who he was. His human nature stands in awe of the divine nature, its limitless, boundless glory. What he became stands in awe of what he
0: was. Okay. Yes. It's amazing. My mind just shattered into a million pieces. <laughs> wow. Wow, what a crazy thought. Uh, Well, Mr. Stewart, thank you so much for, for joining me here on the show. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to mention or plug or anything like that?
1: No, I'm just really glad to be here, Les. So grateful for your work. I, I'm d- I just thrilled to see good Christian filmmakers. When I was in Savannah, I knew some who were at SCAD, Michael Perkins, and he was a great, yeah. he also had a similar passion. And so it, 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 I'm really glad to see you men using media, uh, plundering the Egyptians and using that mm. uh, for God's glory and it's a delight to be here with you. And I'm just glad for this opportunity. And uh, if anybody cares to know more about Christ Covenant Church, you can find us online at ChristCovenant.Church, uh, ChristCovenant.Church. And our sermons are on SermonAudio.com. And uh, we'd be glad to welcome anyone in the Piedmont Triad to come and worship with us on, on the Lord's Day morning.
0: Beautiful. Neil Stewart, thanks for being here. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll have you back on the show again sometime. I'd love to, anytime. Anytime. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. See you next time.